We shall meet, but we shall miss him. There will be one vacant chair. We shall linger to caress him while we breathe our evening prayer. When a year ago we gathered, joy was Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I read through the works of great American writers, looking at about 100 pages of text in each episode. Uh, I use the Library of America as my main source material. So if you haven't looked into the Library of America, I certainly encourage you to do that. Um, you know, most libraries have a wide selection of these texts. They're really well made. They're also very cost effective. I, I'm not trying to pimp them too much. Uh, they are... Uh, I I really enjoy them, but one thing that's real, one reason I like them so much is sometimes you get three, four, five, sometimes even like six book length texts in one volume. And yeah, the individual individual volumes are sometimes kind of pricey. I think if you subscribe, they're twenty five dollars each. But if you're if you just buy them off the shelf, they might be up to thirty or sometimes forty. But you're getting sometimes four or five books, and in some cases you're getting anthologies that you really couldn't get anywhere else. We haven't really looked at any of those anthologies yes but there's some like you know Liebling's World War II writings for instance which really they put together texts and, and works that really have never been put together before so I think they're kind of worth it for a lifetime of reading but um, certainly your library should have a good selection at least if you're in the United States but even in Taiwan I found many of these at, at certain libraries so it's a really great source to get into I don't know if you're reading along with me but if if you're not, you might want to look into it. Uh, now, in this episode, we'll be finishing up our five-part series on Louisa May Alcott's beloved and well-known and often-read novel, Little Women. So if you're just joining us, I urge you to go back and maybe at least listen to the previous four episodes where I talk about the characters and their paths and where they go. I'm not going to go back and, and repeat all that except on a few thematic points. Um, at this point in the novel... Most of the storytelling is done. There's just a few kind of loose ends that need to be wrapped up of what kind of where these characters end up in their full adulthood. So adulthood. So we followed them from childhood. At the beginning of the novel, they range from age 11 to around age 16. And so we're about 10 years into deeper into our lives at this point. So all of the girls we met in the first chapter are adult women now. They're all entering new phases of their life. Um, well, except in the case of Beth, who dies in this part of the novel, but all the rest are entering into marriages or they all, all the other three are all married by the end of the novel, but there are, some of them are entering career paths. Some of them have children already. So they're really kind of entering this stage of adulthood. So this journey we've been following them of really to maturation is complete. So um, I'm just going to jump right into uh, where I left off, with, with, which is chapter 15, On the Shelf. So this is another chapter, in fact, the second chapter in the second half of the novel that looks at the character of Meg and her troubles being a wife. The first chapter doing that was, uh, I think it was called Domestic, Domestic Burdens or something like that. And in that chapter, Meg, who's the oldest and the first to get married and the first to have kids, She's really struggling with really balancing her kind of 
her what her husband wants with kind of what she wants out of life she would like to spend more her husband wants to save and kind of pr protect the future and he really works really hard and that was causing some tensions and so it was about spending this one is really more about the pressures of being a wife the dual pressure of raising kids and, and and kind of being there for a husband and this is actually one that a chapter that i think feminists could look at today with some criticism and and maybe even some hostility because it seems to place the burden of of keeping husbands happy on the wife um, and really there is a kind of a subtext that maybe her husband mr brooke is not doing enough either but still at the end of the day Marmy, Mrs. March, tells her that you, it's really kind of your fault. Um, so as this chapter suggests, Meg is fearing that she's becoming totally domesticated woman and losing her friendships and losing her com the companionship of her marriage, companionshipness of her marriage. And basically, she's being dominated by her children. Her children are really tough to handle for her, and she's basically spending all her time with her children. She's not really spending that much time with her husband. And she really feels she's kind of losing this relationship and she's just kind of a presence in the house. The biggest time, problem in her life is really that she's spending too much time with her children and basically ignoring her husband's needs. And although I use that word very cautiously, but that's kind of how it's framed in, in the chapter. Now, at the same time, though, Brooke, Mr. Brooke is spending most of his time with his friends. And so this relationship between the husband and wife is strained. Now, of course, Alcott really can't talk directly about sex in these days, but there's a modern reader would have a hard time reading this and not thinking they're also having troubles in bed. And I think this is probably a fairly common problem for married couples after they have their first kid, and especially with, you know, if both are working, which is very common these days. Really, that romantic part of life suffers first, right? Because that takes a lot of relaxation and a lot of time and, and extra investment that a lot of couples really don't don't have time for. So this is a very modern concern, even if we may not appreciate Mrs. March's response to it. She's not very sympathetic with Meg. That's the problem. So Meg goes to Mrs. March for advice, as she often does. But she's not very sympathetic. She tells her that she needs to spend more time with her husband and actually reform how she does things and improve the relationship, putting the burden on her a little bit. Now, the good advice here is that Meg really did need to be kicked around a little bit and taught maybe how to manage things in the house a little bit better, how to manage her time a little bit better. And she seems she wasn't really thinking about how she did things. And she was taking on the burden of raising kids all herself and not giving any of these jobs, like putting the kids to sleep, for instance, to her husband. So the solution then is to give Brooke more to do with the children, give her husband more duties to do with her children, and also put them into bed a little bit early so she would have more time to quote-unquote kind of entertain but this would also ensure discipline and make sure the kids uh, Demi and Daisy are basically more well trained to do things their parents say and this would also then allow this husband-wife time that they both claim to need now Meg is really the last of the girls that we meet that takes direct advice directly from Mrs. March very often the others have kind of moved on Amy's of course in Europe Joe in New York but she's kind of Make has her own income source and she really doesn't go to Mrs. March much anymore. Beth, we really don't hear much from. Um, the last we heard from her was basically her confessing that she's she's dying um, and she only really tells this to Joe. 
So there's not really much uh, for the other girls going back to her, but Meg does. And this suggests that her life is actually the closest to that of what her mother lived. And, and while they're kids, they're all, they're all getting advice from Mrs. Marsh. But at this point, it's really only Meg who still goes back to this. And the Mrs. Marsh sort of loses this didactic role she had in so much of the early part of the novel. Now, there's an issue in this chapter which I found find kind of fascinating, which is really about the power dynamic between parents and children. Just give me a second. It's kind of partially the describing of the problem she's facing. Meg did think it over, found it good, and acted upon it, though it, the first attempt was not made exactly as she planned to have it. Of course, the children tyrannized over her and ruled the house as soon as they found out that the kicking and squalling brought them whatever they wanted. Mama was an abject slave to their caprices, but Papa was not so easily subjugated and occasionally afflicted his tender spouse by an attempt at paternal discipline with his obstetrous son. For Demi inherited a trifle of his sire's firmness of character. We won't call it obstinacy. And when he made up his little mind to have or to do anything, all the king's horses and all the king's men could not change that pernicious little mind. Mama thought the deer too young to be taught to conquer his prejudices, but Papa believed that it never was too soon to learn obedience. Um, so there's a lot to kind of unpack in this, but it has to do with the power relationship between childs, children and parents and, and how it's a little bit different between the husband and wife in this case, how the male child is a little bit more aggressive and more assertive and, and takes on the character of his father. So there's kind of a, so a lot here that if you want to kind of unpack about the relationships within the family, the gender dynamics, it'd be kind of fun to dig a little bit more into that. Now, there's something here really in this chapter about the institution of marriage and how it affects women like Meg and how they're really forced to reform themselves to fit an ideal. And what's really troubling, I think, to modern readers of this chapter is how much it's Meg's job to kind of fix things, even though Brooke seems to be at fault a little bit um, and not fully sympathetic to what his wife is going through in her new role as a as a mother trying to raise these kids who are not really the most well-behaved. And, and Brooke's always gone and, and not really there. And the loss of intimacy in this marriage is as much the fault of Mr. Brooke. But it's being Alcott and these novels always sort of have a happy ending to it even when they have sometimes a bittersweet overtone, you know, it's worked out in the end. So then we get to chapter 16, Lazy Lawrence. As the title of this chapter suggests, we're, we're back in Europe and Laurie is simply wasting away his time in Europe, hanging out with Amy and even getting a little bit in her way. And she complains at one point that he's just kind of always hanging around. And he was, it was nice that he visited her in Europe. Of course, the background of this is that Laurie proposes to Joe, rejected, and so he pouts around and eventually decides to go to Europe. And he goes to Europe and he meets Amy and they start to become friends, but he really doesn't have anything to do there, right? So he's just, he's graduated, he doesn't have really have a job yet, and, you know, he's just hanging out. And Amy starts to get a little annoyed with him for this. She scolds Laurie for his laziness, even as she realizes that he is heartbroken, heartbroken about Joe. She directs him to spend more time with his grandfather, which eventually Laurie does. And he writes back that he is, in fact, successful, you know, writing her letters where he signs his name as Telemachus. So that's all there really is in that chapter 16. It's, it's not too much there. But um, 
this is just kind of a light build up to a, a very a much more bleak chapter and that's chapter 17 the valley of the shadow this is something we've been waiting for for a long time um, of course most readers of the story know the fate of of beth and and have an idea of how to interpret her and the, the most common way of reading Beth is that she is the representation of, of the ideology of separate spheres and the ideology of, of women in 19th century America. Passive, weak, quiet, you know, always silent, sickly, in bed, literally stuck in the home. And we almost always see Beth either kind of on vacation with, at the beach or in the home sick and kind of wasting away. And this, I think, is Alcott's way of really criticizing the ideology of separate spheres and domesticity. Now, Meg is a more realistic depiction of domesticity, in fact, but, but Beth is more like the manifestation of the ideology almost. And she dies. So does this, does this mean uh, the death of this ideology as we enter into a new phase of American history where women have more of a status, a little bit more equality? We've got the rise of the feminist movement and the new woman. Uh, and women starting to be able to assert themselves in the economy and in this public sphere a bit more, like we see in characters like Amy and Joe. Maybe that's that's part of it. That Beth is Beth's death is kind of the death of the 19th century woman. But anyways, uh, the way her death goes is that she's kind of surrounding herself with the relics of her sisters and their memories. She's got Amy's drawings there. Uh, the children come to visit, which is kind of makes what she produces. Demi and Daisy and Joe's stories and she rereads Joe's poems the f the final conversation between Beth and Joe is really about family as we might expect it's not about best wishes or dreams of course she doesn't have them anymore it's really just about family and Beth dies peacefully but locked up in a little room having rarely ventured outside of her hometown in her short life something her other sisters did especially Joe and Amy but even Meg kind of through her marriage gets to see a bit more of the world so best death is of course expected but it does it is a bit tragic for her and we we're supposed to feel a bit sad but um kind of if we want to interpret beth as this sexist ideology then her death is a necessary foreshadowing of real historical events which is the rise of women now, it's going to be a few more decades after this was written before women even have the right to vote. But they're certainly emerging in education and the arts and in other fields to be to, to have significant power in the American in American society. And I think it's around the mid it's in the 1860s at some point where this old practice where women who married lost their property rights uh, ends. I, I forget the exact date where that happened, but, you know, there there are there's progress made. Um, in the treatment of women and the, the the power women have in families and in marriages it's starting to change um, of course it's going to take a while and it's still not uh, done but um, the rise of women is one of the great achievements of the 20th century to be sure okay um, chapter 18 learning to forget so this is we're back in Europe now and we you might think just we just read about Beth's death death and then thinking learning to forget is going to be about learning to forget Beth right so we're going to think it's about Joe but no we're actually back in Europe and we revisit Amy and Lori's relationship and it's really about Lori forgetting his life with Joe and his dreams if to be with Joe and he finally kind of gets over her at this point 
Lori starts to notice Amy's artwork more acutely and starts to focus on it. And he starts writing music. He starts to write an opera. And of course, he has musical interests. Uh, and that's not really the career path he takes, but he's trying to write different things. And he focuses his energy on writing Amy. And they, we get a lot of letters back and forth between Amy and Lori. Amy turns down a marriage proposal from one of Lori's friends, Fred Vaughn. And she was being courted by actually two of the Vaughn boys, two of um, Lori's friends. She turns Fred down and this kind of opens up a path for, for, for Lori to think, well, maybe I could marry her. And gradually, Amy and Lori do fall in love. And on this really nice boat ride, Lori suggests they get married. And she agrees. Quote, he had rather imagined that the denouement would take place in the Chateau Garden by moonlight and in the most graceful and decorous manner. But it turned out exactly the reverse, for the matter was settled on the lake at noonday in a few blunt words. They had been floating about the Mount Morning, the gloomy St. Gingolf to sunny Monroe, with the Alps of Savoy on one side, Mont Saint Bernard and Dele du Midi on the other, pretty Vervey on the valley, and Lausanne upon the hill beyond, the cloudless blue sky overhead and the bluer lake below, dotted with the picturesque boats that look like winged, white-winged gulls. gulls. So that's the, the setting for this marriage proposal, and it's quite nice. And that kind of contrasts with this valley of shadow that we just experienced with the Beth, death of Beth. And of course, Amy's not there to witness Beth's death. And it'd be really interesting to go back and revisit, you know, just how much interaction does um, Beth and Amy have. Now, Beth's very close to Joe, but you don't get the same kind of sense of closeness between um, between Beth and Amy that much. So chapter 19, All Alone. So this chapter is mostly about Joe coming to terms with Beth's death, and Alcott gives some interesting perspectives on Joe's position in the novel at this point. She doesn't do that that often, but sometimes Elcott kind of steps into her account and kind of breaks the third 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 wall and talks directly to the reader. This is common in sentimental novels of the period. Now, if she had been the heroine of a moral storybook, she ought at this period of her life to have become quite saintly, renounced the world, and gone about doing some good in mortified bonnet with tracks in her pocket. But you see, Joe wasn't a heroine. She was only a struggling human girl like hundreds of others, and she acted out of her nature, being sad, cross, listless, or energetic, as the mood suggested. It's highly virtuous to say it would be good, but we can't do it all at once, and it takes a long pull, a strong pull, and a pull all together before some of us even get our feet set in the right way. Joe had got so far she was learning to do her duty and to feel unhappy if she did not, but to do it cheerfully, ah, that was another thing. She had often said she wanted to do something splendid, no matter how hard. And now she had her wish, for what could be more beautiful than to devote her life to father and mother, trying to make home as happy for them as they had to her? And if difficulties were necessary to increase the splendor of the effort, what could be harder for a restless, ambitious girl than to give up her own hopes, plans, and desires and cheerfully live for others? Now, that's suggested here by Alcott, by the narrator, but that's not what she picks. Of course, she does have her ambitions and she doesn't give them up. And to a certain degree, this novel is about individualization. Maybe that's one of the major themes. In a way, I think Little Men and Joe's Boys are more about, I guess, independence. 
And this novel is more about individualization. Now, you have individualization in that novel too, but it's kind of added to it independence, which is something that's much more difficult for these, these young women, you know, who are kind of destined to get married. And it's, you know, Alcott, of course, does not marry and ends up being successful and a writer and independent and fairly well off. But that's not the path for, for most women in the 19th century. So independence really can't be the theme of this path as much as it is in, in this novel, as much as it is in Little Men. Um, but Joe does break free of what's expected of her. And I, I think that's a really nice addition here. Now, they, in this, that's mostly what this chapter is about, but they also get news uh, by letter that Amy is engaged to Lori. Now, having lost Meg to marriage and Beth to the Grim Reaper, she has now lost Amy to marriage. But she has come to terms with loss throughout her experiences and with Beth in particular. And she, part of her maturation is to realize that loss is a part of life, something she was really refusing to accept earlier in the novel, the loss of anyone. And she reacted to it quite violently, actually. When she just gets news that Beth is sick, for instance, she's angry early in the novel. But now she starts to see these departures as part of life, and she's not upset with uh, losing, in a sense, both her best friend and her sister to, to a marriage. So chapter 20, Surprises. This chapter and the last one are kind of bridged by this theme of loneliness. And I think it's it's literally like, uh, the first page of the of chapter 20 is Joe was alone in the twilight lying on her old sofa and the previous chapter was was it all the end of the last previous chapter was it all self-pity loneliness or low spirits or was it waking up to a sentiment which had bided its times as patiently as its inspirer who shall say now Joe's beginning to fear that she's just going to be an old spinster when when she gets older that she's not going to marry now, the previous note that Amy and Lori were being engaged is met with the surprise that they, in fact, had already married when Lori comes. So it's not like they, when they came, I think that's how they do it in the 94 movie, is that they just kind of show up and they're married. But they actually had notes that they were engaged. What's surprising is that they married so quickly. And the reason they did that is they just decided to rush things so they could travel without a chaperone. And we're reminded of how kind of old-fashioned uh, gender relations were at the time that as an unmarried, even engaged couple, they couldn't travel alone without a company. So Lori has a heart-to-heart -heart with Joe where they talk about their past and their future happiness. And he wants to keep his friendship and his love for both sisters. And it's a nice little speech he gives where he talks about his love for Joe and how that's become friendship and his friendship with Amy and how that's become love. And there's a bit of, um, it's really well done. I think it's a, you know, he does make this kind of sister swap, but it, the way he explains it, it's it's quite, it works, um, at least for our characters. And it's something that Joe's actually kind of happy about because she doesn't want to give up this friendship with Lori or her good relationship with her sister. Now, the final surprise in this chapter is that Professor Bear arrives and he's planning to stay a while with them in New England, having left left his job in New York. I guess he didn't have much of a job. He was just kind of a, a tutor or something. But he's going to plan to stay in, in New England for a while. Let's imagine it's Concord. I don't think it's ever named where the, what this, the town they're in. So chapter 21, um, My Lord and Lady. 
So this chapter is kind of about what kind of what couple Amy and Lori will be. They 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 have money, right? So Amy doesn't have much, but Lori does. Mr. Lawrence is rich and he's going to inherit a great deal of money. And the question is kind of what are they going to do with this money? And they sort of want to help people and they have this but they also want, you know, they they have this idea of helping people in general, but they also have immediate acquaintances like Professor Bear, who's hard up, and they have this immediate concern about what they can do for him. They're also making plans for their future, and we get a bit of kind of the gospel of wealth here, and this predates the gospel of wealth by, must be almost 20 years. That's, of course, is the speech by Andrew Carnegie, where he says wealth inequality is justifiable because the wealthy are sort of, the rich are the, the stewards of wealth. And so only they are, they're the best able to redirect the wealth of the society and invest it in proper places. So the wealthy are wealthy, be, not necessarily be for a social Darwinian reason, although there's some subtext of that in the gospel of wealth, but mostly it's about where's the stewards of this wealth. And if, if you have a more democratic distribution of wealth, you're not going to have that same stewardship of it. That kind of comes through a little bit here. Uh, quote, rich people have no right to sit down and enjoy themselves or let their money accumulate for others to waste. It's not half so sensible to leave a lot of legacies when no one when one dies, as it is to use the money while wisely while alive and enjoy making one's fellow creatures happy with it. We'll have a good time ourselves and add a, a little relish to our own pleasure by giving other people a generous taste. Will you be a little Dorcas going about emptying a big basket of comforts and filling it up with good deeds? This is Amy talking to, no, this is Lori talking to Amy. All right, so that, that kind of wraps up the Amy-Lori story, although, of course, Lori will be in the background, and he'll be an important character in Little Men. Chapter 22, Daisy and Demi. Daisy and Demi are Meg's two kids, and we don't really check in with Meg so much. It's really checking in with her family and especially her kids, and... It kind of covers a bit of time showing them growing up. And we kind of see them as they are going to be when they grow up. Uh, Demi is Demi is the boy. He's, he's sort of interested in engineering. He's good at mathematics. He's got more of a scientific mind, for instance. There's a little bit here about relationships and the training that goes on in children about relationships prior to them experiencing them direct, directly. And I think it's Demi who talks to Professor Bear about do you know do, do boys like to be kissed or do big boys like to kiss big girls or something or do, you know so yeah, i forget the exact phrasing of it and bear kind of is embarrassed because he is, of course has feelings for joe but he says yeah of course so it's partially beginning to train them into relationships and in the following novels both of these characters are going to have their own uh, narratives of, of growing up and we'll take some of these lessons with them Although I might be reading too much into that particular little exchange. It might just be a little cute little, um, cute little uh, education about the birds, birds and the bees there. Okay, chapter 23, Under the Umbrella. This, this of course, if you've seen the movie, the 94 movie, this is the final scene of the, the movie. And they do it quite different there. You know, Bear's been around for a while and he decides to go off to the West. In the movie, he just kind of stops to drop off Joe's like um, manuscript or something. 
uh, that's been approved for publication and then he just leaves immediately he doesn't even stick around and then she chases him down um, but anyways it's, it's got the same function in that this scene sets up the final coming together of Joe and Professor Bear now while they're under an umbrella in the rain Bear tells Joe that he's going to be going away to teach in the west and Joe begins to cry when she hears this and Bear then realizes that she loves him or has feelings for him so he takes the opportunity to announce his love for Joe and then they decide to get married and he decides to stay in New England as an engagement present Joe gives Bear this poem she wrote and all this talk throughout the novel of married couples striving for wealth or security or work or a home is all kind of thrown away I and mean, this all the talk about relationships previously, even everything Mrs. March said, which is often quite wise, like don't pursue wealth, but a good home, a good job, a, a faithful husband. That's what's important. You know, that there's still some value to security for in marriages. And the other marriages we see here work that way. Even Brooke, who's poor, you know, is described as working hard and the family gets together to set up a home. The bears, or the future bears, you know, Joe and and Professor Bear are quite different in that they have nothing, right? So there's this famous line where Bear says he has nothing to, his hands are empty, right? And he has nothing to give her. So they're really starting in in poverty. Now, this is kind of thrown, this is again in turn thrown away in the next chapter because they inherit a house, which gives them at least some chance to do something. But at least for this moment, they're completely impoverished. So all they have really binding them together is their friendship and their and their love. So it's a it's a bit of a different relationship than anything we've seen else before in this novel. Now, chapter 24, um, the final chapter of Little Women, the chapter 24 of part two. I think it's probably 47, 48 if you if you're in the version that it's it's chaptered um, without the break. It's called Harvest Time. So Joe and Bear, we get a lot of time passed in this chapter. I think it's five years or so. Um, Joe and Bear experience their engagement apart. They're quite sad about it, but then they eventually get married. Meanwhile, Aunt Marsh dies, leaving Joe Plumfield, uh, which is her big house. Joe gets married and sets up the school with money from Lori and Mr. Lawrence as help. Because, um, of course, this she wants this school to cater to all people of all backgrounds not just rich kids and so that's going to take some startup money and they get it from uh, Lawrence who's kind of the benefactor of the school Joe really wants an open school by setting up a school Joe will be able to be pursue pursue all of her ideas about education she'll be able to continue writing but the story of how all this turns out will have to be held off until we uh, read Little Men which we'll do um, immediately uh, in the next episode but anyways, final themes here. I, I've been talking about themes throughout. I used to kind of, when I looked at novels, I would talk about each part. And then at the end, I would do a segment where I talked about themes. But, you know, what I found I was doing is I was like kind of forgetting things or letting things slide a little bit. So instead, I've been kind of tagging on themes with each episode um, as as I've been reading a part of the novel. And it's it gives me a little bit more time to talk about themes and make sure I don't forget anything. Um, so we got some some... Now, in addition to everything we've already talked about, individualization and relationships and loss and um, coming and going, all of these things are still in this part of the novel. But at, we can add to it a few more themes that are really articulated here. 
One is, and it's something I didn't mention before, but it was certainly there in earlier parts of the novel, is American Europe. How Europeans see Americans, how Americans see Europe. And we have characters who spend a significant amount of the second half of the novel in Europe. So, for instance, an, an American painter still goes to Europe for training and, and experience. Um, Europe still a place rich people can go to kind of relax and, and get away from the, the hustle and bustle of American life. So there's this relationship. And earlier in the novel, there were European characters who looked down on, on the marshes and other Americans. Another big theme here is really marriage for friendship. And both Amy and Joe kind of go this path, especially Joe. Um, Amy also falls in love and, and start, that started with friendship, right? Um, in Lori and Joe's relationship, which of course doesn't go anywhere, it's friendship that, that turns to love for one of them, but not the other. And then the biggest example of this is Joe and, and Professor Bear, who really are just friends. Their, their love is based on a very close friendship and an intellectual uh, love for each other. It's, it's not quite a romantic love. And you never get that. I never get that sense anyways. And even when I read into Little Men, I didn't get the sense of a romantic love as much as it was a, as a deeper friendship, which is exactly what Mary Wollstonecraft said marriages should be based on uh, they should be based on friendship and that's the best way for women to have happiness long-term security and happiness in a relationship is for it to be friendship not kind of passionate romantic love um, we got a little bit here on the proper use of wealth and yeah there's not that much on here it's not that well developed but certainly it's something that amy and and Lori think about which is what should we do with this money we have and at the end they do invest it into into their sister's school, Plumfield. So that's a good use of wealth. But at least it's debated. What's the proper use and function of wealth? Is it security? Is it charity? You know, is, is it important to keep wealth in the family or should it be spread out? And you kind of, Alcott kind of has her cake and eats it too on this by giving it to Plumfield and giving it to the school. They're able to say this money is being put to public use, but it's also kept in the family and a family business of sorts. And then finally, and this is only hinted at the end, it will be a major theme of little men is education. And we see it through the type of school that that Joe wants to wants to set up. She wants a school that brings in people of very diverse backgrounds. She wants anyone who wants to to go there. And it's going to turn out to be a school that doesn't focus on discipline and rote learning. There's a lot and especially in Little Men, about education as play or uh, learning skills alongside education. So there's some pretty radical ideas about education presented in Little Men, and there, some of them are foreshadowed in the planning about the school in, in Harvest Time. And just one last thing about the name of the last chapter, Harvest Time. You know, it's the the theme of growing up here and then these girls are being harvested they're they're kind of ready for adulthood at this point some of them are actually already quite old so there, there's you know they were kind of adults by the time the second part began but this idea that they still had more to learn about the world is, is there and at this point they're harvested and they're ready to go off on their own all right um so that does it for for little women um a really great novel it's, it's not one I originally thought I would get to so quickly because um, it's not the kind of thing I normally normally read. But I had a lot of fun with it, and I think it's it's worth looking at, even if you're, you're kind of like a guy like me who likes these turn-of-the-century industrial 
settings and and kind of the stories about capitalism and resistance to it and all that you know even stories like this i think still have a lot to teach us and and i've learned that this is a much more radical book in a lot of ways especially on gender relations and on childhood and growing up and the relationships between adults and children and how we deal with loss and when i thought more about the setting of the novel and the, the time it was written and the people who would have re read it i i felt a lot of really awareness of of what a whole generation of of young women were going through and, and girls were going through during the civil war and the, and the loss of family members or the long departure of of people um so there's a lot of great stuff here um so pick it up if you haven't read it yet or you know if and if you have any comments if you've experienced little women and you have some feelings about it please let me know i'd love to hear your thoughts and your comments um, but i'll be back pretty shortly with the first part of three on little men so thank you again for listening and i'll see you next time but a golden cord is severed and our hopes in ruin lie we shall meet but we shall miss him there will be one vacant chair we shall live